In this episode of 9-2-Y Talks, CNN's award-winning chief international correspondent, Christiane Amanpour, discusses her new series, Sex and Love Around the World, as well as the stories that matter most right now, with New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd. The conversation was recorded on March 13, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Hey, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Um, I just want to tell a couple of my favorite Christian stories to start. Why? <laughs> to explain why I love her. So once I was at a women's award dinner and Christian had won an award and was on a video screen from some war zone and she started her acceptance speech this way. Some people think my job is just being a hot babe dodging bullets on the battlefield. <laughs> but it's a lot more than that. I thought, this is my idol. <laughs> Another time, we were both working in Saudi Arabia, and we were staying in the same hotel in Riyadh. There was complete gender segregation then. So when I came down to the lobby cafe for breakfast, the men were seated in the front, and there was a small section in the back for women and children called the family section. I saw Christian brazenly sitting up front with the men, so I trepidatiously slunk over to join her. <laughs> a waiter immediately ran up and asked us to move to the back with the women. Without looking up from her newspaper, Christian replied, bugger off and get me another <laughs> cappuccino. <laughs> And damned if the guy didn't. Uh, again, my idol. So um, I know we're, we're going to discuss love and sex. But before we start, I know you guys are curious, because Chris Jen is one of the foremost foreign policy experts in the world, to hear what she makes of maybe it's an average day in the Trump administration. <laughs> and. Uh, Rex Tillerson, what, what they're calling it, Brexit, like Brexit. So. <laughs> oh, don't, don't mention Brexit to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah we yeah. won't. Um, well, Maureen, thank you so much. That was a very nice introduction. <laughs> and two really fun memories. Yeah. Did I really say hot, babe? <laughs> well, it's true. And bugger off. Uh, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure I counted on that waiter not understanding, you know, British profanities. <laughs> And that, of course, was in Saudi Arabia, in any event. Um, look, Maureen is the most fabulous journalist, and we've had the greatest times in some of the places we've met in the field, and she knows much, much, as much as I do about foreign policy. So I just wanted to say that, look, in the last year since Rex Tillerson has been Secretary of State, and the Trump administration has been on the world stage for all to engage with, to watch, to try to figure out and decipher how to deal with. Uh, Rex Tillerson, along with generals James Mattis and H.R. McMaster, were considered by the rest of the world, particularly those who had to engage with the Trump administration, as, I mean, I hate saying this, but as the adults in the room, as a sort of troika that would keep the ship of state from capsizing. They believed that Rex Tillerson, as ineffectual as he may have been as Secretary of State, and he was, uh, at least was 
at least knew about the world, at least as head of Exxon, had traveled all over the world, had had um, many, many business negotiations and, and uh, meetings with all the leaders who he's dealing with now as a representative of the Trump administration as Secretary of State. But of course, he didn't get on with President Trump. So today, when I interviewed on my program Victoria Newland, who is a former uh, Assistant Secretary of State in the Trump administration, she really surprised me when I asked her about this. And she just, you know, almost bleh, you know, she basically said he was a total failure as a Secretary of State, even though he had the right instincts and impulses. He had such a non-relationship and eventually a bad relationship with the president that he couldn't get anything done. He couldn't get his vision done. He couldn't even engage with the president. So he might have had all the potentially right intentions, uh, diplomacy with North Korea instead of war, for instance, wanting to keep <laughs> the uh, Iran nuclear deal instead of ditching it, being much more uh, proactive about singling out Russia and Russia's interference in the US election and in the uh, democracies of not just the United States, but the rest of the Western world as well. He was willing to actually call Russia out where the president wasn't. So on the other side, the State Department has been gutted. They have almost no ambassadors in places where they really need them. And there's a terrible lack of morale in the State Department and a feeling that it's a hollow shell of its former self. And this is happening, as I spoke to Wendy Sherman yesterday, who was the lead negotiator for the Iran nuclear deal and had been in the Clinton administration a diplomat and negotiator with North Korea as well under Kim Il-sung regime, remember that. And she said, look, there are hundreds of people across the State Department, the Department of Energy, the Treasury Department, who have to be engaged in any negotiation with a state like North Korea. These people right now don't exist. And that is going to be incredibly difficult as we read that the president is trying to get prepared for what may or may not be a summit with Kim Jong-un. And she said, if you thought the Iran deal was complicated, which took two years of public negotiation after four months of secret talks between the United States and Iran, that was almost child's play. They didn't have nuclear weapons. They didn't have the intercontinental ballistic missiles to deliver them where North Korea does. And it's going to take a massive amount of of effort and preparation and focus and time and energy and as she said, hundreds of people, not just across the United States government but across allied governments who will also be involved. So this is not just a meeting that's going to happen. So all to say, this is where we are in the foreign policy structure right now. Yeah, we had heard that he left so many jobs open over there and I'm not joking that interns were running North Korea policy. Well, so it's, and it's not a joke. He yeah, has no ambassador to South Korea, go. no official dealing with North Korea. So I just have a couple more of these. So um, I'm just curious, you know, it's, it's one of the biggest uh, mystery conspiracy stories to ever hit Washington, what your theory is about Trump and Putin and why he's turned Republican policy on its head. It's very hard to figure out. And of course, the conventional wisdom is that there must be something Putin has on him. I just don't know. Uh, but it is incredibly hard to figure out. I think one of the, you know, today he moved a slight bit forward in holding Russia accountable when he said he had spoken to the British Prime Minister Theresa May, who out and out said that they believed Russia was responsible and 
for an unlawful attack against their sovereign state in the case of the poisoning of, um, of, of Sergei Skripal and his daughter. And they have asked the British government for an answer from, from Russia by midnight tonight, London time, which in my watch is 10 minutes from now. And uh, if they don't get it, they will you know, hold, hold Russia accountable. Um, President Trump, for the first time, said that he had spoken to Theresa May and that it, it seemed that all sides pointed to Russia, as the British thought, and if they do get that confirmation, then of course Russia will have to be held accountable. That's the first time in my memory or in my experience that he's actually said anything, even vaguely, to hold them account. But I think President Trump also is a character who sees his, his opposite number. In other words, he himself is a, an authoritarian in his own way. I don't mean a dictator. I don't yes. mean those kinds of Putin-esque kind of people. But he's father, the strong man. Yeah, and his father was. Mm -hmm. as, and know. he recognizes and feels more comfortable right. around those. For instance, when President Xi of, um, of China had old term limits raised, you know, he was joking potentially to his donors in Mar-a-Lago, but he said, you know, maybe, maybe we'll do that here one day. Good for <laughs> Xi. He could do it. Um, and finally, our brilliant White House reporter Maggie Haberman has been tweeting today that uh, Trump is finally comfortable in the job, and that's why he's making all these decisions to throw everyone off. So how do you think Europe is going to relate to Trump unplugged and, and comfortable. But they already have. I mean, the, uh, the steel and other tariffs which threatened to hit Europe, America's biggest trading partner, um, drew the following response from the president of the European uh, Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, who's not the most interesting fellow, but he did say something quite interesting. He said, you know what? If President Trump and the Americans can do stupid, we can do stupid too. And we're going to have to tax and tariff blue jeans and, uh, uh, I don't know, Jack Daniels. I'm not sure whether it's Jack Daniels, but, you know, hamburgers. I don't know, whatever it is that, that comes over from the United States. And, you know, you might think, well, that's juvenile, isn't it? But they said that actually we actually will be forced to respond because if we don't respond, then who knows what they'll do next? We have to respond. It's a little like, you know... Putin invading and annexing Crimea. You've got to stand up and confront this guy, otherwise he'll continue, which is basically what he did. Um, all right, so on to sex. <laughs> A perfect segue. Uh, Actually, it could be. So I, not loved, going there. I loved watching Christian in the realm of the battle of the sexes rather than the battle of the soldiers because she was so shy. When she's at war, she charges around freely, but when she's interviewing a Berlin bondage expert who's trying to tie her up and ask her about her sex life, she's a bit demure, which <laughs> is a whole new look for her. And also, the series comes at a revolutionary time in America with the Me Too reckoning. Men and women in America and other parts of the world are recalibrating all their sexual interactions. Um, I found the series fascinating and sometimes a little discouraging because it's amazing that something that is such an essential part of our lives is still so hard for many people around the world and still so many inequities for women seeking pleasure and happiness. So, Christian, you said you got this idea in the bathroom? I did. I mean, as odd as it sounds, um, I was actually brushing my teeth, uh, getting ready to go to work at the sink, looking in the mirror, listening to the radio, 
And I, this was about three years ago, and they were telling the stories of the first really major influx or outflow of Syrian refugees trying to escape the terrible war there, uh, and, and where were they going to go? And they were coming to Jordan, and they were being housed in these tent camps and, you know, containers and things. And I suddenly thought, but gosh, you know, once they've survived and they've got across the border and they're in these massive camps, how do they have a personal life? How do they have a private life? How do they have sex? How do they have children? How, do, you know, with everybody listening to their business and in their business and, you know, cheek by jowl in these tents and containers, and not to mention that your energy must be spent on trying to survive, trying to find food and water, trying to make sure your kids are safe and educated. What about the other side of life? What about the personal happiness side of life? What about the fulfillment side of life? What about keeping your relationships together and keeping your kids and talking to your kids about these important, you know, personal things? And so that led me to think about not just refugees in refugee camps, but people all over the world, but mostly women and young girls, because I'm a woman and um, I wanted to do it through the perspective of, of women. And I found, it's interesting to hear you were discouraged in some parts, I was actually really energized because I found that in many of the places I went, including the Middle East, I was in Beirut, I was in the Far East, Tokyo and Shanghai, in Africa, Accra, Ghana, and um, New Delhi, Berlin, and I found that in many of these places I had always covered women, girls, men, ordinary civilians, in the worst, most extreme situations, as they were, you know, in, in war, disaster, famine, and crisis situations. And to be able to actually explore something so much more intimate, something so warm, something so human, something so fundamental to our experience as people, um, was a great liberation for me, a great sort of uh, change for me. And I was especially gratified that I wasn't looking at these people as victims. I wasn't looking at these women as victims. I didn't choose to focus on pornography or on uh, human trafficking or on forced marriages and things. I wanted to look at the flip side because everybody does the victim thing. And I actually found that so many of these young, particularly the youngsters, the younger generation, are taking their own destinies in their hands as much as they can and much more than they used to. So their previous generations would be about forced marriages, would be about the family ruling the roost and everything from honor killings to marriages to where you go to school, what you do with your life, the work you do, especially for a woman, was within the paradigm of what was best for the family. Everybody in the family had a vote on what you as a woman could do except for you. And I found that this is changing. And let's just, uh, just recently, without me even knowing what was happening in India, a UN report, I think it's the UN came out, to say that over the last uh, year or so, massive decrease in the number of forced marriages and child marriages in South Asia, powered by a whole education system in India, for instance. Now, I find that really encouraging. And then, you know, there were many, many other fun and, you know, human stories that I discovered. But on the macro, I actually found that, you know, as much as there is catastrophe and crisis all over the world, and as much as women have not yet solidified their rights, either here or there, 
there are real green shoots of hope, and that's fantastic. Um, yeah, you were interviewing, I think it was an Afghan refugee, mm. right, in a conference room, and she's trying to figure out how she can possibly have sex in this public, you know, situation, and the woman goes, I got pregnant, right, in this room. Yeah. <laughs> right in the room where they were doing the interview. Yeah, which was actually a school. Yeah, it looked like a, a conference school. room. Yeah. Separated by just, by just pieces of material, but right. that was, you know, fabric. Uh, into the bedroom and the kids' area and the living room, and there was the couple, their two children. The young wife of 22 was pregnant with her third kid, and she had got pregnant there. This was a refugee camp that the Germans had set up, camp, you know, sort of place for these refugees. You know, Germany did the right thing. Germany took in about a million refugees who were fleeing Syria, and they've been incredibly, incredibly well integrated, and it's actually working. Well, that's a fascinating part where uh, there's a German woman who teaches sex classes to young Muslim male refugees yeah. to try and, and uh, take them out of the strange place they'd been and they haven't heard of orgasms or anything and she wants to normalize them into Exactly, the and that was one yeah. of the things that the German and other governments said. The men who come from those parts of the world who have no experience with women's rights um, had to take these classes to be able to, you know, conform with society. Yeah, that was And actually they were fascinating. Yeah. That, those classes were really somewhat humorous, actually. So... Um, so what was your biggest surprise? Well, I love those classes. Right. Um, apart from me playing naked ping pong, and you're going to have to see whether I'm actually naked. I'm not going to give anything away. Uh, but she, the guys were she naked. She strips a little, but we won't say how much. <laughs> um, going to a BDSM class in Berlin, which ended up looking to me more like an afternoon extreme yoga class and then having and then it's, having it's like flying yoga. yeah and, and then and then and then having ropes thrown around me I'm not used to that kind of thing but especially not on television so I did my normal thing and I just like totally pretended that this wasn't happening and I kept interviewing with a straight face um but I guess what surprised me and uh, and at the same time gratified me uh is that all over the world, it's the same situation. No yeah. matter where you are, that the dynamic between women and men, between the family and the youngsters, between, um, you know, this, this whole sort of moment that we're experiencing now, the Me Too movement is so fundamentally important here. You can imagine how important it is in the rest of the world. Well, I guess the thing... I found a little discouraging, and maybe because it's true in Ireland too, is, is she goes to Tokyo and Shanghai and talks to so many people about how they never hug or kiss or have public displays of affection, mm -hmm. fathers and, and mothers and children and boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and wives, and that was a little sad. That was sad, yeah. uh, most particularly in Tokyo where it's extreme. I mean, there's a whole class of sexless marriages, that's what they call them, sexless marriages. There's a whole growing group of asexual young men. I mean, men who are virgins uh, up to a certain, you know, over the age of 20. There's a big dysfunction in, in sexual relations, in, certainly in Tokyo. I don't know about the whole of, of Japan, but certainly in Tokyo. And um, there was one of, the, one of the, the, the couples who we focused on at the very end was the antidote to all of this. It was, um, you know, a, a wife, her husband, this was her second, uh, his second marriage, and he admitted that he had basically messed up his first marriage by being the typical, what they call, office man. The 
office worker, the person who had got up at 6 o'clock in the morning, went to work, didn't come back till 11 or 12, usually drunk, usually having been out with his male colleagues or potentially finding, you know, sex and intimacy elsewhere and coming back home and never really having a relationship with the wife. And this couple, who we met and featured at the very end, were trying to do exactly the opposite and trying to uh, promote... Uh, an adoring relationship to to others. And they were online and they have the Adoring Husband Association. And part of it is for the husband to get up there publicly, a group of husbands, and shout at the top of their lungs, you know, I love you. And it's so amazing. And there's something probably about the serotonin and the exercise. And, you know, you know when, you, when you do anything vaguely athletic, you feel good. There's a rush. And, you know, all of a sudden, everybody's smiling and they're hugging and they're kissing. But it was incredible to know that there is no PDA. It just doesn't exist in, in it's just wrong to hold hands or kiss in public. But the youngsters are beginning to do it. So a certain generation have never had it, never done it, never will, although these people are trying. But the youngsters are trying and they are trying to break out of this. And then there was this other you know, episode where I went to a bar in Tokyo and I wanted to talk to sort of sex in the city. Do you know what I mean? Young women who were uh, professionals, who were of a certain socioeconomic, um, you know, they had money to spend. And it was wild talking to them about sex. This woman admitted to me that she hadn't slept in the same room as her husband for 10 years. And what they do is after they've had their kids, the husband stays in the marital chamber and becomes again, you know, office man and goes off and does his thing. And the wife, you know, goes into the children's wing and sleeps with the children, basically. And this woman had practically tears in her eyes when I was asking her about her relationship. And um, she admitted that she now has a boyfriend, but it's all very quiet and subdued. And now there are burgeoning hostess clubs. In other words, men have always been able to go to host clubs and often... They don't have sex, they just want to go and talk. So strained are interpersonal relationships that they don't even find the intimacy of conversation, so they actually go and pay for that. And now there is the same for women in, in Tokyo. And, and it's it really costs 100000 US dollars a month? Sometimes. To go and complain about not it, it, having it's... sex with your husband? <laughs> Yeah, and to talk to young boys who will actually listen to you. But it's not a month, it's however much you choose to plonk down oh, this on was, drink and, yeah. and, 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 you know, paying That's this boy. That's how much it would be. So this yeah. was the funny part. So Christian is trying, asking this young host what exactly he does for the women, and he goes, well, sometimes I give them a princess lift. Yes, <laughs> like, yes. Imagine like that. Like in Dirty Just Dancing. Just lift them. Yeah. You know? You know what was it's another, weird. Yeah, another. I mean, I have 50 pages of questions about Japan because Japan has, to me, the most unusual sexual mores. But uh, another really interesting thing was the young heterosexual Japanese women like to watch male gay porn on their phones. What mm -hmm. do they call it? The Rotten Girl Club. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. and manga. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in Japan and, and China, they you looked at some of the, again, Christian is so embarrassed, <laughs> many of these segments, but you were looking at the early ancient erotica. Oh, yes, 
Yeah, so yeah, yeah. They yeah. started out much more. Well, that able is actually fascinating, yeah. Maureen, and and you'll know from your visits to the Middle East and elsewhere. Uh, and we all know that we live now in a very prudish society, um, where sex is taboo. Even here, there isn't any real. Uh, interpersonal sex education for our kids. It's all very, uh, you know, it's all very much about anatomical detail and when you should do it and what protection you should take and what precaution. But do we really have classes on love, courtship, intimacy, emotion, feelings? Do our kids really know where to get this kind of information other than now? Obviously, porn is rampant and that's a problem in terms of if that's your paradigm, um, or, or from friends. I mean, you know, since time immemorial, people have got it from somewhere. But there's, you know, there's, there's no attempt to break down these taboos. And we're in 2018 in the United States of America, in Britain, in Europe, and of course, way down the line in places far and further east where they're less advanced in, this, in these cases. So it was actually amazing to see uh, these young people try to figure out how to learn about relationships, how to learn, how, you know, dating, for instance. There is no such concept of dating in, in China. Why? Because for millennia, there have been arranged marriages. So now there are dating coaches in China. And China, Shanghai particularly, has the highest concentration of female billionaires and millionaires in the world. Because for many reasons, including the one-child policy, those who chose to keep their girls and not abort them, poured all their love and energy and money into making sure their girls had the best of everything. And now there are lots of very, very successful and powerful girls looking for men who do outnumber them, but the kind of men who you know, are up to this new modern generation of women. And so, you know, there's so many interesting social dynamics in a country like China, which underwent one of the worst types of social engineering. Well, I wanted to tell Christian that, um, you know, a, a lot of the China segment is about arranged marriages and there are and just breaking out of really it. funny uh, segments where there's a TV dating show where the parents, you know, decide who... Uh, their kids can date. And then the parents set up umbrellas with flyers attached in the park advertising their kids. Yep. It's amazing. <laughs> and, and guess who's the host yeah. of, of this dating show on television, one of the most popular shows in Shanghai, a transgender woman. Yeah. So they've got everything. Right. But I, you know? I, I went to tell Christian that one time, a long time ago, like 15 or 20 years ago, I was interviewing Jessica Lang. And I, um, I said to her, oh my God, you've had two of the most amazingly passionate love affairs with these two amazing men, Mikhail Baryshnikov and Sam Shepard, and what is that like? And she paused and looked away and she goes, it taught me to believe in arranged marriage. <laughs> <laughs> so, China, China may not be as weird as we seem. All right, so I'm going to go through all the countries, and just to make sure I have time, I'm going to put away all my J Japanese questions. <laughs> that, oh, but before we leave Japan, you know, 
uh, a lot of the men have a hard time communicating, and so obviously they've moved on to uh, sex dolls, and uh, they feature one of these crazy sex dolls. And robots and things. Yeah. But one of the things you asked me, and I sort of lost my train of thought, was about the books of eroticism. Oh, right, right. And I think that is one of the things that's so interesting. I started to say that we're in this very, very weird moment of, of, of politics and religion and sexuality and all of that sort of combining, basically since about 1979, if you take our modern era, whether it's in the West, whether it's in you know, the, the Islamic world or even the Jewish world, even in Israel, with this sort of rise of conservatism in all of our, in all of our countries and orthodoxy. Um, but if you go back hundreds of years, you know, you have the Kama Sutra. You go back further, you have the, uh, you have the Shunga in Japan, which is what you're mentioning. Yeah. So all these graphic uh, images of sex, uh, which were how-to manuals, and which were all, and, and, and including in the Arab world, there's this book called The Perfumed Garden. That really staggered me. I couldn't believe it. I mean, here we have this unbelievable set of religious reasons why women are second class, third class, and fourth class citizens in the Arab world. And sex is such, and in the Muslim world, the sex is such a taboo that you go back hundreds of years and you see, actually, it wasn't always like that. And these are not just books for men. These are books for women as well, who instruct women how to seek their pleasure and get their pleasure from their men. And, 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 and to think that we've come so, you know, full circle over so many hundreds of years that it's now a taboo topic is kind of sad. So uh, religion, is that the problem? That's one of the problems. <laughs> yeah. it, of course it is. Right. Of course it is. And uh, I mean, in, in, in Japan, I asked them, uh, you know, what happened? And they said, well, you know, we had Shunga, we had these, this amazing book, our version of the Kama Sutra. And then in the 1800s, the Victorians came. And we decided that, you know, we needed to be more Western, we need to be sophisticated, we need to move, you know, to, to Western ideas. And with it came this closure and this, and this very uptight morality that Victor the Victorian era brought. But I don't know whether any of you have been watching Victoria on television. This woman had a great sex life with Albert. <laughs> I mean, that was a really great love story. And with the guy after that. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. several. Um, so in India, uh, so there's no cuddling in public, no yeah. sex before marriage. Unmarried couples are refused uh, rooms and hotels. Mm -hmm. uh, one young woman described their romantic tra trajectory as, don't talk to boys, don't talk to boys, don't talk to boys, now make love and get married. And or, you cleaned it up. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, you know, Indian schools, I guess, are trying to figure out how to talk about Indian masculinity. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we're going through the same thing. That was the cover of the Times Magazine, how you teach boys, mm -hmm. you know? Um, well, I've always said that, you know, this is the, the situation that we're in as women, whether it's here, whether it's there, nothing will get resolved unless we include our boys and our men, nothing. This is not just about educating girls on their rights. It's educating boys as well. And I'm mother of a boy, uh, 18, he's gonna be 18 in two weeks time. 
And, you know, as I said, boys are raised to be macho, not to shed a tear, not to have an emotion, not to fail, not to get dumped, not to, you know, all of this stuff is like an affront to masculinity. And there are so many very interesting men now writing interesting books, and they're usually the artists and the comedians, actually. There's this wonderful, I don't know whether you know, the British artist Grayson Perry, who wrote a book about masculinity and sort of had his manifesto for men. And I do believe that, um, that it's, it's, this is the moment where we have to get serious about engaging, involving our men as well as our women and our girls, boys and girls. And I do think that the generation, my son's generation, is so much more open and tolerant and, and sweet and sensitive than, and, 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 and able to actually show their feelings than perhaps and That's true, generation. but they've also been very shaped by porn. Yes. You deal with in some yes. countries. Yes, yes. Yeah. So in the India part, you talk about the problem there with harassment and rape. Yeah. Well, India is one of the most dangerous places, has historically been one of the most dangerous places to be a woman. Right. Um, a few years ago, there was this catastrophe of this gang rape. I mean, it's one of many, but it took the world's attention because it was this young medical student. She was traveling with a friend and they were gang raped on a, on a bus. She was gang raped on a bus and later died. And India rose up and the rest of the world actually paid a lot of attention. Um, and I think a lot of corrective measures went into effect after that. Um, and India was horrified and ashamed and humiliated that this was happening. But of course, remember, you know, there's bride burning, there's, you know, it used to be that widows would have to go and basically self-immolate on the pyres of their husbands when their husbands died. Um, you know, if I remember covering for, for 60 Minutes years ago, a story of a, of a young woman who didn't want to get married to the person that she had been told to get married to, partly because it would have completely, well, it would have gone against her wishes, but it would have uh, devastated her own family because they had to give so much in dowry. So there are these dowry crimes that go on. And, you know, this still happens, but there's this huge effort to educate and to change this situation, whether it's on the police level, on the prosecutor level or educating in terms of girls' rights and, and trying to end the incidence of child marriage, which they define as under 18s being forced to get married. So you warred around with an all-female biker gang in India. That looked like fun, except for the cows on the road. Yeah, a lot of cows, and they're sacred, so you can't actually beep or bang into them or anything. And it's... And is that biker gang about, you know, kind of exploring their... Independence, power? actually. And actually, it started, guess why? Because these women, each and every one of them who's in this, in this, in this biker gang, um, it was started by, by the group of women who found that they were unacceptably physically harassed on the public transport. You know, people would rub up against them, all that kind of stuff. And we know that... I know that happens in the French metro. You know, right. so, you know, enough already. And that's why this moment is so important. <clears throat> it's so important, the Me Too movement, and it mustn't be squandered on the scalps of just a few high profile people. This is a real moment when we say enough is enough, when men and women say enough is enough, either in that kind of extreme sexual abuse and harassment or in the casual everyday sexism and misogyny that is still alive and well in this country and in many of the other non-democratic, non, uh, non, yeah, non-democratic countries.
Um, all right, that brings us to Beirut. <laughs> now, is Beirut the place that had the hymen replacement? Correct. Surgery? It's called hymenoplasty to because, the cognoscenti. Because um, I remember many years ago, 30 years ago, my mother, you know, when I was still living at home, my mother called up the stairs and said, oh my gosh, they've discovered how to do hymen replacement surgery. There are going to be such long lines. <laughs> <laughs> and there are. <laughs> and there are in Beirut. So, uh, But isn't that sad as well? Yeah. Um, the reason, the biggest reason for it is because virginity in many cultures, and most especially in the Islamic culture, is prized above all else. So that men... And this is, again, where it's, and I found this in Accra, Ghana, too, which is one of the most burgeoning and successful countries, uh, sorry, cities in Africa, where there's a lot of, you know, young entrepreneurs, men, women, and having a great and successful time. And men are expected to go out and have multiple partners before they get married as an experience, as a virility thing, as, you know, make sure they get, they choose the right wife, etc. That's part of what they're expected to do, including in the Arab world. But God forbid women should do that. Yeah, they were explaining in, in uh, Ghana to Christian that uh, the, the men had... Um, mistresses and girlfriends and wives and that the whole country revolved around the happiness of the men and that you had to cook for your man and but all actually, this stuff. And, and Christian is like, that leaves me out. Yeah, that leaves me <laughs> out. Um, the, the, it's interesting, actually, because in Ghana, the women who I talked to uh, said that a lot of it was about, about economic necessity. You know, they apparently... As a woman or an individual, you cannot rent an apartment without putting down several months' rent, which they don't have. It's right. as simple as that. So they are somebody's girlfriend yeah. or somebody's mistress, and then there's the wife. But of course, this is also a culture that has long um, indulged in, uh, what's the right word? Multiple wives, what's right. it called? Uh, um, Polygamy. Polygamy, thank you. Yeah. Woo. Um, yeah, so it's not that unusual right. in terms of the history. But, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to see how they cope with that. But I must say, there's so many sassy, amazing women, certainly who I met in Accra and who I met all over the place, who are seizing this moment and actually, you know, transcending and, and getting over some of these incredible... Uh, cultural restrictions that they've lived under so many for so long. But the hymenoplasty, there was this wonderful, beautiful doctor, um, uh, OBGYN, and, and, and also she called herself a sex therapist because she ended up giving lessons and, and therapy to many of these young women who came to her before they were about to get married. And many of them said, you know, I have got to be a virgin on my wedding night. So there's a flourishing trade in hymenoplasty. You see, I'm sort of miming. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, but she said also, um, you know, they have been, it has been drilled into them to the point of, of, of pathology that virginity is everything and that the hymen is everything. So those who haven't lost their virginity come to her and they want lessons and advice on what to do on their wedding night. And they are so freaked out by having been told their entire life since they could listen and hear anything that they had to be virgins that they don't even want to lose it to their husbands on their wedding night. They are literally trying to figure out how to relax and how to do it. And the, the doctor says, you know, you may be losing something, 
but you're gaining something else. You're gaining a partner, you're gaining love, you're gaining a husband. And she said, and if you don't do it, it's not gonna go down very well. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a whole sort of pathology that has erupted over this. And then there was a group of uh, very attractive uh, young Beirut lesbians who were very taken with you. And yes. asked you yes. if you had ever had an experience. Christian has to spend a lot of time dodging, dodging personal deflecting. questions. Yeah. I mean, uh, one thing I found interesting was that um, Beirut women are so obsessed with beauty and beauty products because one of them said they've been raised in a destroyed city. Actually, you know, that, that is an interesting observation. And then I'll get back to the uh, LGBT group that I was talking to because it's very uh, unusual in uh, the Arab world and indeed in Africa because in many parts of that world it is actually illegal. And they are actually, you know, really harassed and hounded and imprisoned and all sorts of things. So it's a very, very difficult, uh, you know, lifestyle. Um, but um, what, what was the other, oh, the beauty. I remember when I was covering the war in, in Bosnia, in Sarajevo, which was, you know, just absolutely awful. I mean, it was the first time we had genocide in Europe since the end of World War II. The city of Sarajevo, which after all had hosted the Winter Olympics in 1984, was a really worldly city, multi-ethnic, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, the whole lot. And people had lived side by side for centuries. And it was under siege, like this medieval siege, and there was very little electricity and food and all the rest of it. All this to say that when occasionally people could gin up a generator or whatever and get some electricity, or the you know, the besiegers had allowed, you know, lines to be fixed for, I don't know, some special occasion. The first thing that happened, the women rushed to the beauty salons. <laughs> the first thing, firstly, to re-dye their roots, which were now down to here, um, to get a haircut, to get the mani-pedi, whatever it was. But the real reason, the subconscious psychological reason, was to stay dignified, to stay human, to keep that little bit of humanity that the world was taking away from them with this siege, with this shelling, with this sniping that went on for four or five years. And that is what beauty does for women and care, and probably for men as well, but I was focusing on women, that um, in a state of war, you don't know whether you're gonna survive from day to day. And even though it's not open warfare in Lebanon right now, it's, you know, they're worried, they're worried. They're never quite sure that they're gonna get through the next month or years without war breaking out. So beauty has become their, their default option and, and what makes them feel good about themselves. And it's interesting, and yeah, there's, again, a lot of plastic surgery. A lot of good blow dries. And uh, that brings us to Berlin, and where you got tied up in a bondage class, and the bondage teacher loosely. told you that 70 to 80% of people are not happy with their sex life. Yes. Even in Berlin. Yes, which that's another fairly constant, you know, of, of this whole operation, this whole sort of series. Yeah, yeah, that was depressing. And you said the Nazis burnt down the world's first sex research institute. I did say that. Because Hitler that's thought true. the only role for women was to have lots of blonde, blue-eyed babies. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a thing in Germany called KKK, and it's not what we think is KKK. It's church, kitchen, children. And that's what women are expected. 
even, even a lot today. One of the very funniest um, uh, chats I had around a kitchen table was in Berlin. And um, one woman was American, expatriate, expat living there, and the others were German. And, you know, I was telling them that I'd just come from this bondage class and I'd just seen, you know, this and that. And, and I was asking them about dating and date night and this and that. I said, date night? I'm so tired just trying to raise the kids, feed them, get my husband his dinner, this and that, that I don't even, I can't even think about sex. And then we started talking about, you know, domestic work and housework and sharing all that and how that would increase potentially a woman's libido. And they said, absolutely. They said, it's not about us entering the male sphere anymore. It's about the men coming into our sphere and not helping us, but doing it with us. And you know what, if they did, we may feel like having sex more. Yeah. Certainly we'd have more time to think about it, and we'd have more inclination. Um, I was interested, you talked to this sexologist in Berlin about, mm -hmm. um, she was talking about the yes. new conservatism sweeping Germany and other parts of Europe, where women are being sent back to the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I, I just wondered, you know, as you've covered those parties and that trend, what do you think? I, look, I think that in general, it's not really like that. I mean, there certainly is a trend amongst certain, uh, uh, certain women, but in general, you know, it's, it's women and girls trying to figure out how to, as everyone, balance their lives. And once they figure out how to balance their work and, and, and private life, how to then really sort of enter the kind of intimate dialogue with their partner that allows them to express to their partner what makes them happy, what makes them stay together, what makes them, you know, satisfied on every single level. I found, I found in general, communication to be a problem. And I don't know whether it's the same here, whether people talk to each other more in this kind of society and culture, but communication and real communication about what it is that makes you happy, about what it is that, you know, you can tolerate in each other, where, you know, what, what you want from each other on a daily basis, almost sort of rewriting the, 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 the contract all the time, given the changing dynamics in, in your life, your history, wherever you are. Um. I love the story of the uh, little girl who had been a slave who you met <gasps> on 16. Oh, that's why that I went story. to Ghana. Oh, my goodness. I wanted to do, we, when we chose to do a city in Africa, I immediately thought of Ghana, not really because of what Ghana is today, which is a very thriving city where women are really, really included in the workforce and even in the marketplaces, even the traditional women are running these marketplaces. It's actually pretty women-friendly. But 20 years ago, I had done this report for 60 Minutes, which was investigating a phenomenon called trichosi. And it is very similar to many other, you know, such paradigms around the world, where young girls are essentially pawns made to, P-A-W-N-S, made to pay for the sins or the debts of their father or male relatives. So in this case, I had you know, got into a dugout with my crew, and this is 20 years ago, and we'd rowed across the Volga River. Is it the Volga or the Volta? One of them. Um, went to this, like, island in the, in the middle of the river where there was this shaman, these priests. Um, they call them sanctuaries, I think, if I remember. And, you know, these guys, you know, pulling a fast one, essentially, telling all these men that they had to give them their 
prepubescent. They're five, six, seven-year-old daughters so that their sins would be absolved, so that whatever illness they had would be cured, whatever debt they had would be repaid, and et cetera, et cetera. And I met this young girl who um, now goes by the name of Brigitte, but then didn't, I don't, I don't think she even told me her name back then. And, I, I, and I've got all this sort of footage of when I asked her why she was there, was she happy, did she miss her parents? And I have never, ever, ever forgotten that story. And just before we started shooting this program, we heard back from her. She contacted our producer, Andrew Tukach, who was the producer on this segment. And she told him that our program on 60 Minutes had been seen by this wonderful person in America who had pulled out all the stops, who had got her out, and who adopted her and brought her back to the United States. I mean, really, it was fantastic. And, and he this paid part, ten thousand. He right? paid ten thousand to the priest guy to, you know, uh, you know, pay her debt, um, and pulled her out. And I said, we have to do this story because now she's actually going back to Ghana. She's in Accra. She's working to help, you know, yes. some of these people in the same situation. And when we met, I mean, it was really emotional. Yeah, when they meet, she's just sobbing. Yeah, and I had to ask her. I said, you know, did you ever get violated? And she said, no. And she said, I think because you guys were there, they didn't dare touch me. But also, I got out, and excuse me, but I got out before I had my period, before I was old enough. before. Yeah, a month before. And therefore, I wasn't touched. You know, as soon as girls started to become adolescents, then they were raped. Yeah, that's And a, they were sex slaves and, and, and labor slaves for the rest of their lives. <laughs> um, so this was just yeah. such a fantastic ending to this tragic story. I'm going to get to audience questions. I was going to ask you one more question about Accra. You talked to the Dr. Ruth of Accra, who has a call-in show mm -hmm. advising Mama on Zimbi. sex. Mama Zimbi. And she advised one woman who felt she wasn't getting enough sex to make love to her husband while he's watching television. <laughs> Which reminded me of the classic Seinfeld episode where George figures out how to make love and watch TV and eat a sandwich all at the same time. <laughs> Which he said was male nirvana. Um, okay, so here's the first question. It's a really great one. Talking about sex, can Stormy Daniels take Trump down? Well, let's, let's first see if 60 Minutes um, actually has the cojones to air the tape, air the interview. Um, we'll see. Um, I don't know. Look, I, I don't know. You know, there's so many new normals that have been defined. Um, in a different era, maybe. Uh, depending on what the actual facts are and what gets found out and all the rest of it. Um, but it's certainly, uh, you know, everybody's looking at it from abroad, where I usually report from. Everybody looks at everything that's happening in this White House. Um, and I do think the serious aspect, though, is having done this series all over the world and um, obviously reported on Me Too and all the rest of it, I mean, look... You know, when the leader of, of the free world has issues, just let's take the Access Hollywood tapes, um, it's a problem. <laughs> where's the example? You know, where's the morality? Where's the, where's the, where is it? And um, that's a problem. It's a problem. 
All right, this is another good one. Melania, arrangement or true love? I, I'm gonna say green card, I don't know. Uh, what's the one thing that shocked you the most while doing your series? Shocked me? Just me talking about this stuff was shocking enough. <laughs> that shocked me the most. Did you find anything you want to try with Jamie? <laughs> <laughs> Not in public. Um, what role does the internet play, if any, in sex around the world? There was one a country lot. where I was, uh, China was it, where you're not allowed to show nipples? Yeah, I mean, yeah, in lots of, yeah, lots of, lots of, um, lots of, yes. I mean, in, in quite a few of those places. But look, uh, it has a huge role to play. A, in introducing people to the concept of the whole dating and the Tinder and all of this. But as we know, um, the porn aspect of it as well. Um, some of that is... I mean, you can think what you like about it. Some of it, though, some of the sexuality, which is not hardcore porn, but what, what they see on the internet, has actually shown people, men and women, what they can do, what's available for them in terms of, I don't just mean methods and positions and things like that, but feelings and rights and, you know, what relationships can be like, what intimacy can be like, all of that. So that's why a lot of people do look and even if it's, you know, series and things that they see on the internet. Um, okay, here's a good question. Putin versus Trump, who wins? In what department? <laughs> um, Nuclear missiles? Yeah, who has the bigger Love? buttons? Um, well, what do you think? Putin versus Trump? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think we have to figure out what is at the heart of that relationship, you know? I mean, it's, it's the strangest thing I've ever covered in Washington. It is so that's, strange. That's all I know. And you, what do you think of, um, talking about Saudi Arabia, where we last met on, oh, in the yeah, field, I wanted to what do you, you think that. of MBS and oh, the driving ban being lifted? Is, and well, I wanted to ask you this, because you know we covered Saudi Arabia in full Jim Crow flower, and uh, you, women couldn't rent a car or get out of the country or go anywhere without a male guardian. And I tried to rent a car once, and the guy just started hysterically laughing. Um, but he, it has a new leader that is, uh, act, you know, he said women can drive, and there seems to be hopeful signs as far as equity for women. But on the other hand, it's with this iron fist of authoritarianism. So I just wondered what Well, I, I think you, you just, I, I think it's great that yeah. what's, what the little steps that they're, they're being given and it's a massive freedom. I guess if you remember the car brought such amazing freedom here to America, right? right. Every adolescent wants a car because it's about freedom. Right. So imagine these women who've never been allowed to drive, they can't go to their gym class, they can't go here, there or anywhere without some guy having to pick them up, usually hired help, drivers and this and that. So they've never been able to be spontaneous Spontaneous. And now they'll be able to, and it's a real freedom that they're feeling. And there's a massive, um, you know, all, all, they're all getting driving lessons, of course, not on the roads right now, but in car parks and, you know, in, 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 in the lots behind supermarkets and stuff like that. Um, but the big issue, I think, is what you just mentioned, the male guardianship. Until they remove that right. so that a woman can actually have a passport, can have her own money, can travel without the permission of a father or husband or son, if her husband is dead, the son or brother. I mean, imagine that. 
talk about slavery. I mean, it's really terrible. Yeah, it's really terrible. It's so that hopefully, terrible. gradually, that, that stuff will be lifted. Uh, will Trump serve a full term? If so, what are his chances of re-election? Okay, I think he'll serve a full term. And then what happened tonight in Pennsylvania? Does anybody know? I don't know. You'll, you'll see. You'll, you'll, it'll, it'll unfold in the... I don't know. What can I tell you? Who knew that President Trump would be elected? So it's hard, actually. It's hard to make these kinds of decisions. We have to watch. We have to see. We have to see where the policy and the politics um, takes us. Um, I think that most people think that the midterm elections will be an important barometer. And hasn't he all, already said something? Like, even though he's talked about 2020, he's also said that the next slogan will be keep America great again, or yes, great, keep right. America great. Right. So that could be a, I've done my job and now let somebody else keep America great. I don't know, I just don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't go along with these theories that he wants to get out of the White House. I no, no, I don't uh, either. Yeah, I think he's quite comfortable there. Uh, <laughs> what can we expect of Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State? Well, look, I think that's interesting and in circling back to how we started this conversation. You know, I sort of described Rex Tillerson as somebody who was much more on the um, negotiated way of, of doing foreign policy, whether it's Iran, whether it's trying to hold Russia accountable, whether it's diplomacy versus fisticuffs with North Korea. Um, Mike Pompeo is described as a classic neocon. He's quite hawkish, and he uh, also disdains the Iran deal, uh, has been quite hawkish on North Korea in the past. I don't know what his tone will be now. Um, I, you know, again, talking to Wendy Sherman, and, and these are the big issues that really, that really, really matter. I mean, North Korea, if we're to believe that President Obama told President Trump when they met in the White House that his greatest challenge will be North Korea. You know, these are, this is a huge issue, precisely because of the amount of, of technology that North Korea has perfected. And the US intelligence community were caught napping, unfortunately. They didn't realize how far advanced North Korea was in its nuclear warheads and its, in its missile delivery systems. And so there are many people in the US intelligence community who do not believe that getting North Korea to denuclearize as a first step has any chance of flying, that the best you can hope for is maybe eventually down the line that might be a goal. But for the beginning, it's about freezing, it's about a detente, it's about sort of a Soviet-era Cold War, you know, ability to, to contain and, and rein them in. Um, but also, as you know, there are very important segments of the policy establishment who do not believe in compromise and believe that negotiation and compromise spell weakness and surrender. That, of course, is not true. In order to negotiate, everybody has to give and take. And um, so that's going to be very, very tough if Mike Pompeo believes or Donald Trump believes or whoever else is involved in this believes that in order for the United States to get a good deal out of North Korea, that they have to totally surrender, it's not going to work. And she told me, she said, look, every negotiation, when you're the strong one, which the United States is the strong one, right, whether it's vis-a-vis -vis Iran, vis-a-vis -vis North Korea, you have to give your opponent somewhere to hide, somewhere 
to, 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 to save a certain amount of face and dignity while doing what you want them to do. So the, the ultimate aim is for them not to use their weaponry. So you have to create this paradigm without saying, if you don't give it up, that's the end of it. And then, then what happens? Then what happens? Then you're on a, on a path to war. What would have happened if they hadn't sought and got this deal with Iran? You know, Israel was convinced that there was going to be a nuclear weapon or something like that. And who knows what military alternative might have been taken if this deal uh, hadn't been worked out and this negotiation hadn't been worked out. So if people can, can try to not make perfect the enemy of the good, then there may be some hope. Uh, well, I guess that brings us to when they have this meeting, uh, Kim versus Trump, who wins? <laughs> well, okay, here's the thing. First, we don't know whether there's going to be a meeting because the North Koreans have not publicly confirmed what the South Koreans told President Trump, which is that Kim Jong-un wanted to have a meeting. So we haven't actually heard from the North Koreans. Um, and then, even American analysts and officials believe that Kim Jong-un has so far been in the driver's seat. In every, at every turn, at every turn, not least perfecting or getting towards a much more capable nuclear capacity and missile capacity. And, um, you know, he's the one who came to uh, the Pyeongchang Olympics. So, I mean, he didn't come, but he sent his, you know, the number two in the hierarchy. He sent his, his sister. sister. Yeah. You know, there was all these smiles and this and that. And, I mean, the world was thrilled because he had set up this paradigm that he was the crazy guy who could, you know, incinerate the world. And all of a sudden, everybody's... Oops. Just <laughs> delighted that instead the smiling face of North Korea appears uh, at the South Korea games. And then he says he's going to have a summit with the South Koreans. And then he says he wants to talk to President Trump. Wow. Is he the good guy now? I mean, that's what's going on in, in the visuals. Um, and, but the truth is, and the fact is, that never has an American president met with a North Korean leader. So if Trump does meet with him, it's a big feather in his cap. So President Trump has to be super prepared. Super prepared. <laughs> Yeah. He has to be super prepared so that North Korea doesn't score a propaganda victory and, and, and give nothing back, and that he recognizes the areas where there is you know, room for negotiation and agreement, and doesn't say, well, if I don't get all of this, I'm going home. Make America great again. Okay. <laughs> this is a true fact. They actually have to keep finding ways to put his name in paragraphs of briefings to lure him from one paragraph to the next. Well, here's a fact as well. I didn't know that one. But he himself has said, and, and others have said, um, and this is why he probably has a very good relationship with Mike Pompeo, because Mike Pompeo has been the person every day who goes and gives him the presidential daily briefing, the intelligence, and all that, and explains it to him in a way that, that they like, that's yes. convivial. Exactly. Yeah. So he's, he's apparently developed a trusting relationship with Do Pompeo. You, have you heard of this new uh, CIA woman, Miss Torture? <laughs> 2018. Gina Hapsell, I believe no. her name is. 
So Gina, well, you've probably all read it, so this is nothing new, but she was, I mean, it's, it's public record. She did lead one of the first or the first US black site, which was established in Thailand after 9-11, and was there when the torturing of Abu Zubaydah and other 9-11 suspects was going on. And then her name is on the memo that, because a lot of this was filmed by the CIA, and um, several, I don't know how long ago it was, a year or so ago, they, they ordered they destroyed, right? I th or maybe it was contemporaneous. In other words, her name apparently is on the uh, memo ordering these tapes, films, whatever they are, to be destroyed. Having said that, there are many uh, upstanding members of the CIA community, people who we all you know, interview and enjoy their analysis, who say that she's very good. And this is the best that we can have at the CIA right now, that she's very respected. And um, so we'll see how it goes. Yes. I mean, does she have to get confirmed? Yes. Well. We're going to continue our wild ride with President Trump. And in the meantime. Because torture uh, is illegal now in this yeah. country. Yeah. <laughs> Christian's new series, Sex and Love Around the World, premieres March 17th on CNN at 10 p.m. And I highly recommend it, because you can see her playing ping pong naked. <laughs> <laughs> and um, also, you can see her tied up in bondage gear, which everyone will want to see. And I would just like to say she's the coolest. Uh, Maureen, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.